This is the first few minutes of a middle school classroom right after lunch. All right, guys, let's get ready to center. Find a place where you can be quiet and still. Please place your feet on the floor in a way that you feel grounded. Jacqueline Mann is leading the students in a practice called centering. Resist the urge to lean against the table in front of you or the chair behind you. You are strong, able-bodied humans. Let's celebrate that by sitting up in your chair. Feel your shoulders stack over your hips. And sit in a way where you know you can be quiet and still for some time. Let go of any expectation of how long you might be here and just allow yourself to be here. Take a deep breath in through your nose, fill all the way up. Through your nose, let it out. Close your eyes or rest your gaze. Just make sure you're not looking at or focusing on anything. And now turn your focus and attention to your breath. Feel the air move in and out of your nose as you breathe in and out. As you're breathing in, think, breathe in. And as you're breathing out, think, breathe out. Jacqueline goes on for about a minute longer, giving less and less prompting and letting the students sort of sit in the silence and just focus on their breathing before she finally concludes. And as you're ready, you can quietly open your eyes and draw your focus and attention back to the space. Thank you. And they get started with class. You're listening to the Tom Gibson Podcast, and in today's episode, we are exploring mindfulness in the classroom. We're looking at what mindfulness is, why it's worth doing in your own life and in your classroom, and how to get started if this is something that's brand new to you. I sat and spoke with mindfulness specialist James Butler. I'm James Butler. I'm the SEL mindfulness specialist for the Austin Independent School District. And what is SEL? Social and emotional learning. I want to talk to James because he's the mindfulness guy. He's worked with over 130 schools, not only helping teachers bring mindfulness into their classrooms, but also into their own lives as well. So you used to be in the classroom, but you've kind of shifted to this role. What, what exactly led you to exploring mindfulness on your own to the capacity that now you want to actually be teaching it to, to other people in education? Yeah, so about, I think it was 2010, I was teaching kindergarten um, here in Austin, and I was going through a really hard time myself dealing with depression, anxiety, and was noticing that some of my stuff was like seeping into the classroom. And I was like, oh, my kids are five and six. Like, they don't they don't need my stuff. Like, this is this is my stuff. They got enough things going on. So I learned about mindfulness actually through therapy and like found I found this really terrible, cheesy yoga YouTube video. Um that uh, is like sun salutations, but it's like a song. So there's like down dogs, so the dogs are barking, and there's cobra, so there's like snakes hissing. So the kids are like, the kid. I did it for the kids because you know, well, I, I chose that video for them um, because I knew that they would love it and like you know get to do these poses and act like animals and stuff. But all the while, I was doing it for myself and just like taking big, deep cleansing breaths during that five minutes every day. Um, so I like I did that for myself and then realized how much well one I realized how much it was helping me to kind of like 
not like ignore my stuff, but to just recognize what, like if I was being triggered, what was, what was going on and to allow myself to see to the root of behaviors and not just see a behavior and not let my past stuff come into the classroom as much as when I was dealing with the kids. But then I started noticing the kids, like how they were interacting with one another and how were they were, they were handling their emotions. Um, and they were like solving problems in a much more like calm and clear minded way. And I was like, Whoa, this stuff is magic. <laughs> um, so it like really helped me, um, you know, really like see like my, the, all like the whole child in my students. And then it, it helped them. And then I just kept, I was like, well, this is genius. I was like, I'm just going to keep doing this for a few minutes a day. And it totally just transformed my class environment for like the next seven years. Um, so, and then a few years ago I was, uh, uh, was honored as teacher of the year for the district. So that gave me a platform to speak about things. And I started speaking about mindfulness among other things, um, and shared it with the superintendent and, uh, shared some videos of my kids practicing. And he was like, Whoa, this is really cool. And then I wrote, uh, like a curriculum, just like a 36 week guide poses and breathing exercises to, to do throughout the year. I shared it with the superintendent and he said like, let's pilot this in the district. And I was like, say what? <laughs> uh, so I trained 20 teachers at the beginning of the, I guess it would have been the 15, 16 school year by the end, like throughout the district. And by the end of the school year, that program was being, was being used in 400 classrooms and there was a ton of interest. Um, and then they created a mindfulness specialist position to go in the social and emotional learning department. So mindfulness is kind of, I mean, I, I've been seeing it kind of on Twitter and lots of other places is becoming a new buzzword in education. Um, how would you define mindfulness and you can define it by what it is, but probably also by what it isn't. I define mindfulness just like kind of taking from John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness, just like paying attention to the present moment, non-judgmentally, um, and adding cure in like kindness, um, you know, with the kids, like I kind of like show the definition from like kind of like the, the main definition from John Kabat-Zinn, but then just really talk about, um, just like paying attention to the present moment with kindness, just like really stressing in the kindness for ourselves and for others um, and what it means to truly pay attention, not just like listening, but paying attention with all of our senses, paying attention within. Um, so kind of like diving into each of those, those facets. Um, and then something that we, that I'm being very proactive about defining mindfulness um, and stressing that like what we are doing here in mindfulness is secular because we're in public schools and, you know, uh, we want to be respectful of all, you know, beliefs and everything and understanding that mindfulness has its roots in Hinduism and Buddhism, but what we're doing in the schools is completely secular. We're not trying to change anybody's beliefs or anything. We totally honor and value everybody's beliefs. Um, but there's science behind this and how it helps kids learn. It helps kids focus. It helps kids um, 
deal with their emotions and recognize their emotions and then, you know, and how to, how to move forward and not just kids, adults too. Uh, <laughs> but from like the, the, the school perspective. So we really, we try to be very proactive about that. I have a letter that, that I share with teachers that explains what mindfulness is and kind of debunks a little bit of those misconceptions. And there's a little blurb from our superintendent that supports mindfulness in the schools and we have it translated into like six languages. So we really try to like be proactive about that. Jacqueline Mann, the teacher that you heard leading the centering activity with her class at the beginning of the episode, shared a little bit of how she's seen mindfulness impact her classroom. Well, there's one class in particular that it really impacts. Um, I have a particularly lively class that comes in after lunch and a break that's a lot like recess. And it's pretty wild when they get there. And I actually turn the lights off for the class after lunch for centering. And I, I have to tell you, I never forget to center for that class because energy is usually in such a way that um, I feel like it needs to happen. And just giving them that opportunity, and I can center up to four or five minutes with that class um, to breathe really deeply and intentionally to help lower their heart rates and get them ready for the day. Just from start to finish, I can tell a big difference in the energy level. And I'm not trying to bring energy levels down necessarily for the classroom because that's not really how I teach. But there is a point where sitting down and being present with yourself and the people around you does get you ready to begin. James has a YouTube channel and there's a video where he went around to a bunch of different schools in Austin and just asked students how mindfulness has helped them. Um, Mindfulness really has helped me my whole life. I didn't know that it was called mindfulness when I was using it before but like especially before performances and shows and things like that through our school like it can be really hectic and everybody has a different job everybody has to do something there's a huge audience you know and it's really easy to think that like to blow it out of proportion and to get really uh, yeah exactly Um, but if you can just take a second and check in with yourself even if it's directly before you go on stage and just like find your center and take a breath you perform better and then also you're just happier you can enjoy the experience more when is the time mindfulness has helped you when i was scared because it was nine o'clock at night and i had to go get my sock outside how did mindfulness help you it helped me be not afraid of the dark. What did you do? I did this. The students started taking deep breaths. I've been doing mindfulness practices with my classes for about four years, and I've known the big picture reasons on why we do it of kind of creating more awareness of of where you are and the moment that you're in and learning how to focus by focusing on your breath. And I was curious in regards to mindfulness and what is happening psychologically, not only with yourself, but with your students when you're leading them in a practice like this. Could you say your name, your title, and how long you've been doing what you're currently doing? Sure. Tell a little bit about myself. Okay. So I'm Dr. Tori Olds. I have been a psychologist for 10 years, so I got my PhD about 10 years ago. 
Mainly uh, what I focus on is how to work experientially in psychotherapy. So that could be using mindfulness or somatic tracking or motion focused or kind of just exploring more deeply what things mean to us. What I was hoping to do today, which I thought might be really interesting, is um, talk about mindfulness in connection to attachment and attachment theory. Now, I assume that teachers know about attachment theory. That's something I'll talk about. Let's assume they don't. Okay, let's assume they don't. I don't really. Okay, well, the broad brush, uh, you know, with attachment theory, um, I'm going to give my own sort of way of understanding it today. So it, w- it may not be exactly what you normally hear. What you normally hear would be the importance of a child having a secure base of at least one adult um, that is there for them that's a presence that knows them, that is attuned to them, keeps track of them, and how important that is for their brain development in terms of future regulation, emotional regulation, interpersonal connection, you know, self, everything basically really comes down to, I mean, if we wanted to use just a regular word, we'd say love, you know, love and, but the security of knowing for a child that I'm going to survive and be okay because there's a bigger person watching out for me. So that is a huge theory in our field. It's the main one. We focus on it a lot. We explore in therapy people's attachment histories, their attachment styles, like being avoidant, people that have trouble with closeness, or being the opposite, kind of clingy. Um, For young kids, um, attachment has a huge impact on their brain. But I kind of want to walk through, and it'll seem like I'm not talking about mindfulness for a second. (laughs) Okay, good. But like everything I'm about to say actually completely it sort of is mindfulness. It's the same thing. It's, it's, a, it's a funny thing, but the human relationships are like the deep template that later when we're doing mindfulness, it's the relationship with ourself, but it's still about presence and showing up. So one of the main things with, that creates attachment security is when a child is in moments of stress, they've had a loss, something, a hurt or a loss or something that, you know, problem that couldn't be fixed and they're upset about it. <clears throat> so let's imagine it, like maybe there's a kid and their toy breaks. So um, in that moment, if they can run to their parent, it's like their brain has a piece of information it just learned that's distressing. Maybe it didn't really know. Like, oh crap, I live in a world where toys break or something, or, or grandma dies, or you know something bad happens. Their little brain is trying to figure out, how do I integrate this into my overall map of reality? Now, this is kind of a weird thing, but that's the main job of the brain is to like create a map of reality that, that helps us make predictions and live and, you know, just be in reality, basically. You know, it's really uh, good for our mental health to kind of have a good map of reality. But in that moment when a negative thing happens, if a child can go to the parent and at the same time as they're feeling upset, like maybe like distressed by this bad news they just found out about life, <laughs> um, and the parent says, is able to say, yes, that's true and slow down with them and say like, oh, that really hurt. Or yeah, she's gone or, you know, your toy broke or whatever. I see that and I'm here. Like maybe they say I'm here or maybe they just show that they're there. They don't have to say it because their body's there and they're holding them with their body and their tone of voice. So right at the moment that the child's brain is, is kind of flooded with negative news, it's also flooded with information about support and connection and resource, the good news. That's really important because in that moment, it's like now the negative experience, it's like 
the larger map that they're used to of things basically being okay, you know, and feeling okay and feeling connected is online at the same time. So the negative can be like woven into a larger reality that's basically good. That is so important. That's, that's called integrating an experience. It's like, it's like, what, how, how is this okay? So picture for a moment that that child has a negative thing happen and nobody is there for them. So then they just learn some really bad news about reality. But it's like, unless they also can have somebody there to help like bring on their normal map that's like, hey, no, n- not everything is broken. You're still basically okay. That's really overwhelming to just be attending to this bad thing, to just be feeling this bad thing. And especially if they look and no one's there for them. Now, not only are they upset about the original thing they're upset about, but they're learning this other piece of bad news, which is when things are hard, I'm alone and no one really cares about me probably. You know, So that is really overwhelmingly negative. And then there's two things that they can do with that. One, they can go into avoidance of it. Say, I can't even show up for this moment. This is so huge. I'm upset. Something, someone just hurt me. Someone just bullied me. Something bad happened. And, and now I'm alone. You know, and no one's even paying attention to that. That's so overwhelmingly bad that they'll try to go into some kind of avoidance of it. Or when the avoidance defense doesn't work, then suddenly they're really overwhelmed. Because wherever that memory lives in their system, that information about badness, it never got like assimilated or digested or incorporated, integrated into like a basically okay reality. So it just lives by itself in this little neural net that says badness, 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 only pure badness. So my brain better never trigger that. I better not remember it. I better not think about that thing. I don't want to talk about it, you know, that kind of thing. Because if it does, suddenly that's all I have in my brain, in my awareness, and it's completely overwhelming. And that's what we call emotional dysregulation. So I think these are kind of profound, like to me. So when I think about something like mindfulness, which we'll get to in just a moment, like, like we have to slow down and think about what the human mind and heart need like what our job of our brain is, which is to understand this freaking crazy reality we're in and how are we going to engage with it? There's a saying in psychology, Hebb's law, that neurons that fire together, wire together. It's like, so it's like those neurons can wire up. It's like they're firing at the same time as the other comforting signals, the good news or the generally reality is still unbroken. I'm still loved or alive or whatever, or strong is firing. Then it like weaves, literally like they're woven together. So when you don't process an experience, like when if something really hard happened, a trauma or something, and you don't like digest it in some way, it's like those neurons are sort of like floating off by themselves. <laughs> you know, they're not connected into your map of reality. And so when they get triggered, this is why people get triggered. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's like, and then suddenly it's like their, their, their little experiences haven't, or their big experiences haven't been integrated into a, a, a unified map. So they're feeling great. One little thing happens, total different set of neurons start triggering, and they're feeling five years old again, totally flooded, totally can't think straight. They don't have their, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like they have separate selves inside. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it becomes one or the other. Yeah, it's very fragmented, Yeah, which is why in, in therapy we talk a lot about integration. But that's how you integrate is by processing things. And it takes mindfulness because in some ways that's what mindfulness is. It's saying, I'm going to slow down and attend to more than one thing at once. Like, I mean, I know it's a kind of funny thing to say because often you're just attending to one thing. <laughs> but um, like in the kind of mindfulness, my favorite kind of mindfulness, and there are different kinds we can talk about, you know, it's, it is important just to, to develop focused attention. But um, 
people who really get into mindfulness, one of the most powerful forms that really are healing and transforming is really just like open awareness. So you're not like just focusing on your breath or just focusing on, you know, a mantra or something. You're just kind of like being with whatever you're experiencing. And I think that's really important for the reasons we're talking about in terms of like, it just allows the mind to say, like whatever, like let's say um, kids come to the classroom by the time that you, if you, if you did mindfulness first thing in the morning, they've already had a bunch of distressing stuff happen. Probably, you know, there's like tension in the car with parents, you know, or like stress getting out of this, you know what I mean? They're probably already kind of like amped up, you know what I mean? Or like some like little, or they're anxious about a test or something. Like they probably have some little things of discomfort already like at 8am, you know? And so if you're like, no, if you, but when in that moment, when you can like let those be online and you're just not, you're not trying to shift them. Mindfulness is not relaxation training. That's actually a really important distinction. It's a totally different thing in the brain. So it's not relaxation training or like trying to shift your state. It's saying, can I be with what is? It's, that's it. It's like, can I be with what is? So the brain can integrate it and figure out a more whole, coherent reality that can hold, yeah, I have a little tension in my chest, but gosh, it's kind of quiet in the classroom, which is sort of soothing. We're all together. And... And that kind of hurt what dad said when I got out of the car and I, d- I feel disrupted by that, but I'm breathing. Do you know what I mean? It's like, just a let's like, I don't know. I just think of it as like getting kind of like everything sort of the, the mind finding a way to like have it all come together. Yeah. Does that make sense? There seems to be kind of like a, almost a dichotomy in the sense of you, you call it the attachment theory, but there's almost a sense of detachment where you're not just attaching to, to one emotion or to one thing, but you're just kind of like taking a step back and objectively looking at the big picture, the big reality where it's all there. There's the discomfort and then there is the, uh, the comforting right. part of life too. And then right. the other, like what you're talking about, the, the focus part, like, I've, I've done mindfulness, whether it is just about like, okay, I'm practicing focus. I'm practicing just looking and paying attention back to my breath. And I'm letting, I'm noticing when my mind begins to wander and this, mm-hmm. that's okay. I'm not mm-hmm. judging that. I'm yeah. not like, Oh, I, I, yeah. I lost focus again, but <laughs> yeah. I'm just coming back to my breath. But then there's also the, the other essence of mindfulness and the other way of just kind of observing all of it. Right. You know, like I've used that that mm-hmm. app Headspace where mm-hmm. one of the times are like, just let the thoughts be kind of like cars on a highway mm-hmm. that you're just kind of observing you're what's observing, going by. Right. You're not like, oh man, another car went by. It's just like, there's that thought and there's this feeling and there's that emotion. Mm-hmm. And let me just kind of take a step back and mm-hmm. and just observe and, yeah. and and let be objective about all of it. And yes, right. And, and thank you for saying that because it, c- c- this is the piece that really pulls it to attachment theory again. It's like, you know, we're talking about like, there's the good news of like, I'm breathing, I'm generally okay. There's nothing that's better news to the brain than feeling paid attention to. So like, or obviously the early template is the one we just talked about. Somebody is showing up for me, somebody that knows what's going on and strong and loves me and, you know, is paying attention to me. They're like showing up and just tracking me. They're not like rushing in to fix it or convince me or be heady about it. They're just being with me. Actually, as adults, we get that too. Yeah. Like a friend is just, yeah. you know, it's like if you have a loss, if you have a breakup or something and your friend just says, I'm here and they just listen, you know, it's like that listening, I witness what you're talking about. I, I like, I am witnessing you. That's like, there's nothing more hopeful to our brain than that, you know? So that's where, that's where, why there is automatically this positive always, because when we do that to ourselves, our brain loves that too. 
because it has this sense. It's like our little being inside is saying, I'm being tracked. Wow. Like somebody's listening to me. Like is being present with me, is showing up, even if it's just myself, which is kind of a funny thing. But that still feels good because we know that's probably a better state to be in if we're tracking ourselves and showing up and like monitoring. You know what I mean? It's better than that other state we talked about of the avoidance. So looking at what mindfulness is, the impact it has on a class, and the psychology surrounding it, I thought James might have some best practice ideas on how a teacher could get started if they wanted to bring mindfulness not only into their own lives, but into their classrooms as well. I first start by just encouraging them to explore a little bit on their own. Um, I share about like the Calm and Stop Breathe Think apps that have free lifetime subscriptions for educators. So I like encourage them to download these apps, get that free access, um, do some exploring with that, and really try to get them to think of, because teachers, as you know, like have so much to do and they're exhausted by the end of the day. Um, so I try really hard to get teachers and staff to think of mindfulness as an integration into their lives as opposed to an addition like oh not another thing I can't do it I can't add another thing but like my personal mindfulness practice started with my coffee routine in the morning I noticed that for that five minutes while the coffee was getting ready I was on my phone checking email checking twitter nothing productive was happening during those five minutes and I was like you know, I have these five minutes all the time. So I'm just going to set that timer like I always do. And I'm just going to sit down and focus on my breath. So thinking and just trying to get people to think of it as like an integration. What do you already do where you might be able to slide in a few minutes of, um, of mindfulness? And that's been really helpful because it is, it's, there's a lot of like extra things that get, that get added to teachers plates. And I'm not trying to be another thing for them to like add to their plate, but to like integrate into their lives. And that's totally, totally worth it. You said a few of them. What are some of the resources that teachers can look into online or apps that they can get if they're wanting to get started? Yeah. So stop, breathe, think, um, is a really awesome one. You can go to stop, breathe, slash educators and you fill out a little survey and you can get a free lifetime subscription. Um, and that's for their kids app and the all ages app. And I really like that one because it offers um, like a check-in for you to like check in how you're doing physically, how you're doing emotionally, and then they offer a menu of resources of mindfulness practices to do based on how you're doing in the moment. And the kids one is the same. They have little emojis that the kids can can pick from on how they're feeling. And then the Calm app, which is calm.com slash schools, same thing. So calm.com slash schools for the, their free lifetime subscription for educators. And they have a whole bunch of different series that you can do and different lengths, three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15, 20, 30. Um, you know, so recommend those insight timer is another, that's just like a free app. They have some paid stuff, but most of it's just free and it has like a really like nice timer option, um, with some, some peaceful, uh, like bells and chimes and stuff like that can also uh, check out our Mindful AISD YouTube playlist, which is growing, um, but that's bit.ly slash Mindful AISD videos. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> um, 
but that's just most of it. Unfortunately, right now is most of it's just me, but I'm trying to get more people leading and getting students, but it's just a bunch of different like mindfulness practices, just very simple ones. And there's stuff about like, like there's me explaining mindfulness in the brain and what is mindfulness and all that stuff. So there's a few few resources out there. Yeah, I didn't know that the several of those apps had the free educator yeah. subscription. Yeah, and it's like the total of those three apps, I think is like $800 just free. $800 free for teachers. Let <laughs> <laughs> me stress that again. Yeah. <laughs> and so they start working on it on their own, finding time in their own lives to see how it can be integrated. Uh, what's that step look like when they start bringing it into the classroom? Um, I think just baby steps. It depends on what level. Um, but honestly, it's very similar just like as far as explaining what this is and explaining the science behind it. Like I just stress and teach about the brain and like how mindfulness benefits the brain um, and connect with the kids. And so like, you know, I went at some time or when I go into classrooms, I'll say like, you know, depending on like the age level or whatever, I'm like, anybody in here ever been stressed out? And of course, everybody's like, yeah. <laughs> anybody ever make a mistake because you're stressed out or because you're angry? And they're like, yeah, you know, and just like, well, there's these tools that can help us kind of deal with those emotions and handle those emotions so that we make less mistakes or we learn from the mistakes that we do make um, because we're more aware. Um, and it was like, it's a, so that sound like something you're interested in, you know, and just to make that connection of what's something that that your class is having a hard time with or that just that you that you recognize could, you know, could be beneficial um, and pose it kind of as a as a question for them um, to get that like that hook. So it's not just again, so it's not something like, oh, my teacher's telling me to do this, so I got to do it, you know, to give them a little bit of that that personal buy in. So starting out with things like that and explaining what it is, explaining science, and then just starting out by like taking one deep breath, just, just stopping and paying attention to what, what it's like to take one deep breath in and out and just like, just notice that. And that's it. Just like start with one, you know, because a lot of times you tell a kid to breathe and they're like, I, I am breathing, <laughs> you know, or they're like, you know, just like real, like quick in, quick out. Um, so teaching about some of like the specifics, but just like going very, very slow. Um, in my, when I was teaching pre-K, we started with like one breath and it was like three breaths. And then we just kind of like added, and then we started doing like a timer, 30 seconds or a minute. And my students actually turned it into a, like a little like self competition, like within, within the, the class. They wanted to see how long they could do like mindful sits. So by the end of the year, my four and five year olds um, got up to 10 minutes. We were doing 10 minute sits and they're four and five. And not all of them are like naturally inclined to just sit still. <laughs> it was like some wiggly kids because they're four and five. But they they rocked it and they were like they saw the benefit and they like kind of rallied together. It was it was a really cool thing to to experience. When I kind of explain what it means to focus on the breath, I give them a couple a couple different options for kind of like anchors, but I'll explain like or I like to explain that like each breath that we take has four parts. Your in breath, pause, out breath, pause. Um, and 
to like while we breathe, like I'll start it out and I'll actually say like in, pause, out, pause, just to like get them familiar with what that, what that looks like and what that sounds like. And then offer up um, the suggestion if they want to in their mind while they're breathing like silently, which like for the little ones is a little trick here. <laughs> um, but you know, if they want to say in pause out pause, like in their mind while they're doing it, they're welcome to do that. Cause sometimes that helps us kind of serve as an, as an anchor for the breath, but then also to just be compassionate and kind with themselves and explain you're going to have thoughts that have nothing to do with just focusing on your breath. You're going to think about your homework. You're going to think about lunch. You're going to think about why is this guy in here having me do this weird stuff? Like you're going to think about, you're going to have thoughts and that's totally normal. If you notice that, take a big breath, just take a really good, solid, big, deep breath and, and come back um, and pay attention to your breath. If we're doing a practice and this wouldn't be like a first time thing, but if we're doing a practice for like five minutes and you know, and you start going, you're wandering and your mind is wandering. And even if you're able to recognize one time in that five minutes, oh, I'm wandering, let me come back, let me, let me come back and focus on those four parts of my breath. Even if you're able to do that one time, that's a success because you're able to recognize where you're at, what's happening, and come back to your breath. So try to like really stress that, like that normalcy of like, I do this all the time. And all the time I have thoughts, and that's okay. And that's, that's part of the practice. Part of the practice is having the thoughts, recognizing the thoughts, and then coming back to your breath. Sit up right in your chair. And plant your feet firmly on the ground. Pull your shoulders back slightly. And close your eyes or rest your gaze down at your table. You'll likely be distracted by some of the sounds outside the classroom or the movement of others. Just keep your focus on your breath. Inhale through your nose. And slowly exhale out your mouth. Pay attention to how the air moves and how it feels as it passes through the tips of your nostrils and it feels for your lungs to fill up and how it feels as you breathe out. In. And out. Shoulders back if you found that your posture has begun to wane. In. And out with a sigh. <sighs> so what do you do when you have students that even you've kind of explained these are the benefits of this. What do you do with like the reluctant student? That's kind of like, this just really is not my jam. Yeah. 
what I, um, a couple of different approaches with, with students who are reluctant, cause this is a question that I get often and just situations that I encounter often is one to that mindfulness should never like bottom line mindfulness should never be forced on anyone. Um, so just noticing that, um, and then having like a, a one-on-one conversation and just, you know, just being real and be like, you know, I understand that it's not, it's not your jam. Like, what do you, you know, what do you think? What, what are, what are some reasons? Why aren't you like into it and just really listen, but then also, and just get to know like, all right, so like, do you like coloring? Do you like writing? Do you like drawing? Um, do you like music? Do you like movement? You know, and providing options. There's some, there's some schools in Austin, especially like middle school and high school where they have mindfulness time and, you know, like they have like, all right, so we're going to practice class mindfulness. If you don't want to practice, like that's okay. You can draw, you can color, you can read a book like during this time, but just respecting that this is like our, our class, like kind of centering time. Short answer to, to, <laughs> to the question is, uh, you know, never, never force mindfulness, but also like provide, provide options. I mean, it's like with any other thing you do in a classroom, you know that whatever you do isn't going to work for every single person in the room. Um, I do ask that my students honor and respect the environment. So whether or not they're participating in the centering practice itself, they do need to be quiet and respect the fact that there are people around them that are doing it. Um, and I model it. I, while I'm leading, leading the centering practice, I'm usually sitting at the front or somewhere in the room with my eyes closed and trying to participate in the process as much as I can. And on that piece about teacher participation, James shared that while the apps are really good tools for your own mindfulness or for when you're just getting started in the classroom, there's something about the relational piece of having a teacher lead the mindfulness activity. I guess a reluctance with using the apps is that um, I've, 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 I worry about teachers just pushing play and then going and like doing attendance or checking email while the kids are, because kids are brilliant. They see that. They're like, well, why aren't you doing this? You say it's so important, but you're over there on your phone or you're over there checking email while we're sitting here doing this practice. So just being very like careful about setting that um, example. And Dr. Olds even connected this to attachment theory. You know, they can't divide themselves and be there for everyone, but if they can, but you know, it is actually an attachment moment because they're the ones teaching it. It's in person. It's still an adult saying, hey, I'm going to guide you guys all. We're going to do this together to slow down. And can you feel your breath? But I, you know, in my mind, the child's hearing her, her or his voice, you know, it's still a relational piece. It's just that they're transmitting and slowly introducing, like, I'm templating for you how to be with ourselves um, and making it feel safe because I'm the one with a very loving, calm voice guiding it. And I'm showing you because I'm feeling mindful and so attentive to y'all and myself. And I'm showing you how to do it. Like, yeah, it's okay. We can be here in this moment together. So it's kind of like that moment where the, the, the parent or whoever comforts the child and like is there with them and is showing them about presence like if you're doing a meditation or mindfulness in that classroom it's like you're kind of doing that with everybody at once in maybe a slightly more formalized technique way but it's still this like it's a beautiful moment kind of an attachment moment which while it's great to use like online tools and stuff I do think there's probably something important about having at least one in-person adult that you know that's transmitting that for you as well you know so it really has that you know relational piece to it. 
yeah, mindfulness uh, can change your life. Um, I think of who I was 10 years ago before I started even noticing or even knowing or understanding what mindfulness was. And it's just made me happier to be, I feel like a full and active participant in my life rather than just trying to keep up or go through the motions. It's made for a much happier life and a much happier teaching experience in general. Teaching is hard, teaching is stressful. And this is a free way to take care of yourself. This is a free way to fill your cup. This is a free way to make sure that you can be your best self for yourself, but and then also for your students. Um, and to be patient. It's not something that like you practice mindfulness. Say you you know you you practice for five minutes, and you know then thinking like, all right, sweet. I'm not going to have any stress for the rest of this day. Just like be patient with yourself and understand that this mindfulness isn't going to take away all of your stress, but, and it's not going to, unfortunately, it's not going to give you a pay raise, uh, but, <laughs> but it's going to allow us to deal with stressors in a more clear minded way. And that alone is a really, really powerful tool. Thanks so much to James Butler, Jacqueline Mann, and Dr. Tori Olds for sharing insights on mindfulness in the classroom. If you want to connect with any of them, I've included ways you can reach out in the show notes of this episode. I've also included links to all the apps that James recommended. A lot of them have a free premium account for teachers. Uh, So this episode is not sponsored by any of those. And I'm now realizing that this probably would have been a perfect opportunity to get a sponsorship. But regardless, these are some good places to start if you've never done anything with mindfulness uh, and you want to learn a little bit more and get a few examples of, of what it looks like and what it sounds like. I've also included a link to James's YouTube channel where you can find examples of him leading mindfulness activities, uh, some videos on the science behind mindfulness, and a lot of super helpful resources. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Tom Gibson Podcast. New episodes come out at the end of every month. I've been noticing it's almost like the 27th of every month. I've been looking back at the dates that they're coming out. Um, that's not intentional, but it's, I've been seeing a pattern. So perhaps the 27th uh, is my new upload date. If you did enjoy this episode and you are the kind of person that leaves reviews and star ratings on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, that would be super helpful to help other people find this podcast if you went and left a review or rating. I'm Tom Gibson. I hope you learned something today and hopefully I'll see you in the next podcast.